Hello everyone! In this episode, we discussed The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Huang, and something unexpected happened. I went into this episode thinking it'd be a one-hour tight chat about a light-hearted comic. Instead, it developed into something quite heavy and personal. And while we in big parts ended up sharing intimate insight about our lives and not talking that much about the comic itself, I still think it's a testament to how important the story is. Despite our rambles, we do go into spoilerific details as per usual. Another more fun coincidence. Towards the end of the episode, we remark how Jen Wong hasn't released any new work since 2019. But the day after recording this episode, she announced a new comic called Ash's Cabin, set to be released in August of 2024. We're very excited. In the meantime, let's dress up in gowns and get personal. Hi, I'm Paul Duffield, and today my recording tent is held up by a copy of Gloomhaven, which is a fun board game. Hi, I'm Joel Stone. It's September, and I'm officially into my third horror book for the season. So I'm ready and raring to go for something a little more wholesome. Prince Sebastian is looking for a bride, or rather his parents are looking for one for him. Sebastian is too busy hiding his secret life from everybody. At night, he puts on daring dresses and takes Paris by storm as the fabulous Lady Cristalia, the hottest fashion icon in the world capital of fashion. Sebastian's secret weapon is his brilliant dressmaker, Francis, his best friend and one of only two people to know the truth. Sometimes, this boy wears dresses. But Francis dreams of greatness, and being someone's secret weapon means being a secret, forever. How long can Francis defer her dreams to protect her friend? Paris, at the dawn of the modern age. And what an age it could have been if this story was a biography and not fiction. Perhaps the current landscape for gender non-conforming people would have been slightly less hostile? At least we're allowed a glimpse into that alternative timeline through The Prince and the Dressmaker, albeit it's a fantastical one. Put on your biggest dress and most dramatic hair, we're going to the royal ball. You've already started to sum up a little bit of how I feel about this book with that little intro. What were your overall impressions? So, as you know, for context, this isn't my first rodeo. This is one of my favorite comics of all time. I got it when it was new in 2018, and I was blown away. I loved it. I think it's beautiful. I had the exact same reading experience back then as I had this time around, where I think it's near perfect until the ending segment. I admit my reaction to this was more extreme than usual for a variety of reasons. I'll get around to them. I think we might end up disagreeing a bit on this, and since this is a favourite of yours, this might be the first time this has happened. I am thrilled! I'm super excited about that. Give me your initial response. My first impression of this book was, holy crap, what incredible art. What beautiful framing and what a lovely finish. It just, it was so promising. So gorgeously drawn and designed. I was really looking forward to it. It seemed like the sort of thing I would absolutely love. As I started, I kept on stumbling in ways that I didn't expect. Like, not just small stumbles, really big stumbles, where I was like, what's going on here? What, what's that? Did I, I just didn't understand that kind of level stumbles. And I was really confused. I was like, am I, am I getting this wrong? Am I misreading it? Am I doing some sort of like strange, just not in the mood for it kind of thing? Because I was so primed to like it, and I did like it, but it kept on undermining itself over and over again, and that's why I've got so many notes. That it, it's really weird. I couldn't tell as I was reading whether the actual craft of the comic was getting better or whether I was just relaxing into it. I'm really curious if 
you enter this with this kind of um, expectation in a way. Kind of similar to when I had my whole meltdown about dude bros loving beer and football and Naruto. Where you wonder if, is it me or is it just this thing? Or is it something else entirely? And I'm very curious if, if that's related to it in a way. If you just either wasn't in the correct headspace for it, like you mentioned, or this just isn't for you. The thing is, on paper, it is for me. I, I should love this. I, I knew, roughly speaking, what it was about. I was exciting to excited to read it. I love drama. I love period drama. I love high fashion. I love runway stuff. I mean, come on, I sat through all of Gossip Girl. I should love this. I love parts of it. And then, for me, it was a technical execution thing. I think I was looking at it possibly too editorially. Like, my job was encroaching. I've got a few thoughts about kind of like plot and character that didn't fully gel with me. But in general, it was you know, like a really charming comic that failed to charm me. I just, I can't. Very strange experience. Do you want me to kick off with some notes? Yeah, absolutely. I really want to, I really want to hear it from your perspective. Just to sum it up, since we're going to probably name drop a lot. Francis, Sebastian, slash Lady Cristelia is the two main characters. Peter is the side character and he's the son of this rich chain owner and then you have emil who is also a side character and a butler and i would say aside from the king and queen which just needs those titles these are the characters we need to focus on the most probably just her fiance and her brother as well oh yeah yeah of course the, the fiance and the brother yeah already on page three i wanted to make notes I had kind of a similar, but probably for different reasons, experience like you in terms of having to stop all the time. But I stopped because I was enamored or I had a positive reaction. It was very rarely for me that I stopped and went, I was already back into the same feelings that I had several years ago when I first read it. I will go more in depth with specific notes, but the thing that just leaps out to me is the paneling. I adore how it's paneled. I really enjoy the art style. I One of the notes I made is, this artist can draw all genders, all ages, which I applaud because we have read several things now where either young or old people look really freaking jarring in comparison to their counterparts. <laughs> Well, one thing I, I thought I struggled to get a hand, handle on was the setting. It's a sort of France just before the modern era, but I was never able to settle down and, and sort of figure out where that was. Did you have a sense that it had more of a kind of a fairy tale setting or more of a grounded setting? No, I think it's fairy tale through and through for several different reasons. And the only thing that's not included in this is magic or monsters that are more common to fairy tales. But everything else reads as incredibly fairy tale to me. I don't think that's to the strength of the story, personally. I would have just enjoyed if they did this as a fictional setting, that they were just like, this is the land of blee blah blue in moopity moopity moop, and not set it in Paris, France. And I do believe this is supposed to be the late 1800s. That's what I read it as, with my incredibly humble knowledge of fashion and history. <laughs> right, yeah. And I would, uh, that initially, that sense of, oh, we're in Paris. Okay, right. Oh, where in Paris? When in Paris? It sort of initially sort of unsettled me a little bit. And maybe that was the beginning of me not fully sitting into the book. To me, it's not that hard to grasp because the very first page is three rich gals reading Countess Clementine of 
Ardois is pleased to host the summer residence of her nephew, the Crown Prince Sebastian of Belgium, at her Paris estate. It says straight out the gate where it is. Like, as I mentioned, I'm a costume drama fan, and this was giving me intense costume drama vibes, but no historical vibes, which was a real weird clash for me. If I were to make an uneducated guess, I do believe a partial reasoning for this is that it's YA. And that is one of my gripes with it, is that it's YA. I don't enjoy YA that much. I am too old for it. I'm not the right audience. We talked about this several times before. And I do think a lot of times in YA, and I'm definitely throwing an entire genre under the bus here, and feel free to be mad at me for that, a lot of YA that I've been in touch with forgoes a lot of detailing that could aid setting and world building, etc. for mood and atmosphere between characters. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not averse to that. No, me neither. This definitely was a just a constant series of accidentally misset expectations. But when you said by the end of page three, you were already into it. By the end of page three, I was already just a little kind of like, they're reading this letter and they've each got a copy of the letter and they're reading half of it out loud. And then the rest of the letter continues on the letter itself, but it's also the entire letter. And then they carry on reading the letter, despite the, the fact that there appears to be no more letter afterwards. And then they squeal. And then we get like a, a big wide shot of a city with a, a poster of the prince up. And I zoomed in on that. But then the next panel, the poster is being put up by somebody who isn't in the previous shot. It's this kind of thing that constantly pulled me out of the reading experience. I'd gotten the character stuff. That was really well handled. But it was the actual move from scene to scene. It was the way that the letter was framed that just felt a little off to me. Interesting. Yeah, no, now that you're pointing it out, I am inclined to agree with you. I wonder here if, because this is my second reading, that I go in with prior knowledge. So I kind of brush over these kind of quote-unquote flaws and that I'm more in the setting of things right away. Because I don't need the reintroduction to the general gist of it, since that I do remember. And I'm curious if that has something to do with it. But the thing is, I was never lost the first time either. And I didn't find this jarring. And this is very weird, because you know me, you know that I'm a picky little (laughs) B.I.H. about these kind of things normally. Yeah, absolutely. And there are things in this that I have picked out. For example, again, and... To, to stress that this isn't a rule set in black and white, but it is my personal rule, is that in terms of directional guidance, this book commits crimes. There's so much looking towards the spine <laughs> instead of looking outwards. Yeah, absolutely. And I did make notes of this where I, I went, I would have flipped these panels, but it's not enough to ever lead me astray personally. So it is very interesting. I wonder what, what it is about this book that grips me so hard that I'm willing to forgive something that I'm usually such a cunt about in other books that now has you going instead. There's an element to which we're just a bit spoiled for great comics at the moment. This art is top tier. The character design is top tier. The expressions are top tier. A lot of the actual storytelling is top tier as well. But that's way more common now than it was back then, to put it bluntly. I feel like the comic book industry is just growing and growing. And books like this are becoming more sort of more and more normal, like less of a rarity. The fact that we've had an embarrassment of riches to pick from for this podcast, I think, speaks to that. We've got way too much to choose what to put in. I suppose that that might be part of it. Yeah, I don't know, because the thing is, I see where you're coming from, but at the same time, we have ventured through stuff where I feel like 
this criticism of yours was much more justified than it is towards it. And I don't say this because I love this and I'm offended because mm. you know me, I'm all down about somebody not liking something I love. But it's just so curious to me that we've had comics where I could tell that both of us were holding back to not be as critical and as mean. And when I say mean, I don't mean that we're, you know, unreasonable, but there's such thing as being overly critical to the point of being tedious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we've definitely had conversations about comics where I could tell that we were both holding back and we were trying to be more civilized and reasonable. And with this one, I get the feeling that you're just like, nah, nah, I'm, I'm done being civil. Oh, gloves are off. It's time to put up the fists. I'm, I'm going. Ding, ding, round one. We know we're 14 episodes in and we're, we're kind of relaxing into this, perhaps. It might just be the week I've had. Who knows? I think it's partially the fact that, and I think I mentioned something similar with Laura Dean, it's the fact that it's so nearly perfect that makes the things that aren't perfect leap out. And I have the, I know that when I read, I have the biggest problems with this kind of stuff, where something's so near to being fantastic throughout. And I think there are some real moments from this that I really want to get into. My problems with page three were just pedantic, but I had other problems, which I think were fundamental, huge stumbling blocks on major parts of the plot. One thing that really leapt out to me reading this is that I kept thinking to myself, this feels storyboarded. It feels like it was made for an animated feature. And then I looked up Jen Wang's background and she at some point majored in film. And then I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Because this is very cinematic in a way where we talk a lot about panels being allowed to breathe and giving the story room to out and just allowing a couple of extra panels to highlight a gesture, for example. And I do think when the comic does this right, it does so excellent. And that's the thing that I, to this day, still find myself missing in a lot of comics. So that is one of mm. the bigger strengths to me of this, is that I have picked out several scenes where I'm just like, oh, man, I can feel the scene in the root of my bones because it's given three panels instead of one. And I appreciate that so much, especially for this being from 2018, when the landscape was so very different from today we can't stress just how different it was <laughs> yeah absolutely i've got nothing to say back about that i think there were some really lovely little sequences and um and moments which were the ones that you picked out particularly disregarding that it already breaks my personal rule of looking into the spine so just disregard that but on page nine where francis has been commissioned by this snooty little rich girl to make a flamboyant dress that makes an impression you have the top panels of Frances being asleep by her table. The client comes and pick up the package. The package is delivered to the client inside her cart. You can tell that it's early morning because the sky is orange. And then you have the three panels at the bottom of the snooty rich girl slowly opening the package and going like, <gasps> like wide-eyed in surprise. The fact that this is given three panels instead of one. Many people would have just made it one panel and have her open the box in one go and have an exaggerated face. It makes the momentum land so much more effectively with me. And interesting, when when the dress is revealed, it was one. Of, it was another one of those moments where I, I loved the look. I loved how outrageous it was in the setting. Mm -hmm. But it was also massively contemporary in comparison. And this sort of increased that fairy tale feel, I think. It was almost like um, in a world where Mozart was the lead composer, somebody had just decided to invent death metal. It's interesting that you say that, though, because from my limited knowledge, metal is one of the genres incredibly close to classical music. 
it is. It has evolved out of it. But, you know, there are so many steps between one and the uh, one and the next that you're never going to leap from sort of harpsichords to distorted guitars in one go. I think that how contemporary this piece of fashion is just made me think of that. It feels super Met Gala. <laughs> and, and leaping from sort of 18-somethings Paris to a Met Gala was sort of like, whoa, okay, right, we're doing that, are we? <laughs> This is one of the few instances where the fairy tale element works for me. I know that it's not going to be real, since I know this is going to be an incredibly queer story as well. And what happens eventually in this story would never happen at that time. For me, this dress being very high art or whatever you want to call it, like very modern compared to the rest of the dress pieces, it just elevates the fact that Frances is a visionary person she clearly has something very different in her tool set than the other fashion makers of her time probably on reflection these kind of things are absolutely necessary to make that ending work at all so just after this there was my first moment where the pacing felt a little funny to me we've settled into this ball scene or rather the dress of the main character has been introduced and we settled into this ball scene this princess who just does not want to be there and does not want to attract the eye of the prince has just swanned in and is eating food messily with this uh, like all over her dress and i'm like oh, the scandal the drama oh, I'm, I'm getting into this now and then oh this the, the prince is peeking in on them i can't wait to settle into this party and find out what happens and we've changed scene oh okay yeah, I can see that jarring connection where you have on the last panel on page 13, you have the prince sliding open the curtains and the prince is shrouded in darkness, looking out at this scene unfolding with the snooty rich girl soiling herself with cake. And then the next page is back to the dresser the next day. Frances is being the 1800s equivalent of cancelled because of her atrocious dress at the ball. <laughs> and the, the tailor boss is just like, Fuck you, fuck your dress, get the fuck out of here, I can't live with the shame. I personally believe that the delivery of the prince later on is that much more efficient, since we only had this little snoop at him from behind looking into the scene. And then we have where my next bookmark is, which is page 28, and she has been taken by Emile to... She doesn't know where because she's being blindfolded. And there sits what we later learn is the prince, and he is clad in very drapery cloth and even has a doily over his face. And then they stumble into one another, and she tears off the doily off his head, and then she's just like, oh my glob, you're the prince. Fuck me, I guess. The reveal lands much more with me that both us and Francis experience the prince at the same time. He is revealed to both us and her at the same time. And I personally appreciate that. Yeah, I think that was a really nice move. And I've got a note that that particular panel where the drapery falls off, the movement on that is really nice. Those three panels above it with the trip and then the grab when he scoops her sort of underneath the waist as well. So they fall into that kind of classic. We're about to smooch pose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought that was absolutely on point. And I can see where the storyboarding comes in from that. There was something that I, like a question I wanted to ask you again about this scene, mm -hmm. uh, something that I thought I was missing and, and I wanted this scene to be effective, but it wasn't because of this because I just spent the next part of the scene wondering what I'd missed. So she doesn't know who she's been hired by, right? Mm -hmm. She's just received, she just knows it's a high, high up client, like a, a well-to-do of some kind. She takes off her blindfold and sees this room. Now, it's not a massively unremarkable room. It's very opulent. It could be in any kind of like stately home. And sitting on the chair is somebody, we don't know who, her client presumably, draped in a cloth 
wearing what looks like a dressing gown of some kind. And she immediately falls to the floor and says, Your Highness! Now the phrase Your Highness is reserved for royalty, specifically normally princesses and princesses. So I was like, shit, she knows it's the prince. How did she know? Like, I wouldn't have guessed that was a prince. It's because in the page before, she says, the princess, what's your name? Francis, why am I not allowed to see you? I had an accident when I was younger. I'm embarrassed to show you my face. Are you a princess? Yes, more or less. Ah, yes, right. That was what I missed. I missed the are you a princess question. Okay, right. As I'm digging into this, I'm discovering more and more that I was just not in a good comics reading mood when I started this. Mm. And I have a feeling the more that we talk, the more (laughs) I'll discover that the moments that I had problems with were moments like that. On 75, the second to last panel on page 75, I think there's just a very clever little bit of storytelling where the prince has just explained to Francis, did you know that the entire male side of my family are warriors? And they expect me to be a warrior. And he's standing in front of a portrait of his father when he was younger, clad in armor and looking very dashing, you know, think a Napoleon portrait. The prince stands below the portrait, his face obscured by his own hair, and he reads as shameful. And I just think it's a very good way to portray the difference in him and his father. Yeah, absolutely. That was a really nice kind of juxtaposition with all of the portraits behind him. Mm -hmm. It's great. In a similar vein, one of the panels that I picked out that I really, really liked was the first time you see his whole family together, which is when they're playing polo. I love the aunt. She's great. But there's this absolutely wonderful panel on page 67, which is the first time you see the family together. And it's just the most fantastic portrait. I can tell each one of their characters so well just from that. The characters were set so strongly by that that I knew exactly how they were going to behave for the rest mm-hmm. of the book. It was it was really well done. One of the most laugh out loud moments in this early part of the book was on page 70 where... Um, where he says, your Aunt Claire married your uncle and moved here to Paris when she was your age. And she just goes, rest in peace. I can hear that whiskey-drenched cigar-fucked voice as she says that. Yeah, I just knew her so utterly. <laughs> Another bit that like, I was just starting to let, like, settle in in this scene, and, and then there was a joke that really didn't land for me, where he sort of takes his eye off the game for a little bit, and when he turns back, they're all hitting each other with their polo sticks mm-hmm. like why why are they doing that are they not demonstrating polo in front of the king it's desperately unprofessional <laughs> it felt like a children's book joke in the middle of a ya it was a bit strange and not one that landed particularly yeah that's fair i can see where you're coming from it's one of those where that scene didn't give or take away anything for me i just graced over it and moved on to the next page the note that i've got here is that this is typical of my experience so far something incredibly deftly handled and something quite clumsily handled next to each other. And I still stick by that, even realising that some of this is my reading problems, you know, like I just made a mistake whilst I was reading. On page 58, it's the first full reveal of Lady Crystallia. They have snuck out of the castle, Sebastian and Francis. They've snuck out to this club, I guess, where they, for some reason, have like a fashion runaway and the winner will get like a bunch of marmalade. (laughs) (laughs) and she's had or sorry this is where i struggle i never know if to refer to the prince as he or she because when the prince is prince sebastian i say he but whenever he's lady crystallia i want to say she yeah i think the way that i read the book at this stage was that it felt like a drag persona to me interesting and that's the way i kind of imagined it 
this is him on the town, but whilst he's on the town, it's she, it's Lady Crystalia. That I sort of settled into that um, anyway. I, I don't know if it was the right interpretation. Yeah, this also brings me to something else that throughout my reading, I kept referring to this book as the princess and the dressmaker. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why. I also had this constant gnawing question at the back of my mind, how different this book would have looked today. I don't think it's aged poorly by enemies. I think it's still very respectful and very sweet and very safe. I just really wonder today if Prince Sebastian would have been a trans character and not this drag persona. Yeah, I wondered about that as well, actually. Yeah, it would have been a very different story, I think, because ultimately the prince is a straight white guy who loves dressing up. Interesting. You read this guy as straight? Well, I mean, yeah. Because I sort of see modern queer culture from an outside perspective, I don't feel embedded in it at all. My experience is, quote-unquote, behaving queerly, or what would now be considered queerly, come from a time when queer was not used in that respect at all. It didn't, you know, it was a slur full stop. There was nothing else to it. Mm -hmm. I had some gay friends, I had some straight friends, but we all liked dressing up in each other's clothes like grunge was in and everyone looked the same anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The men were an eyeliner, the women were an eyeliner, we're all wearing the same jeans. Then when I got into the goth scene, there's such a huge blend between the way that men and women dress there that, you know, going clubbing as a guy in a skirt is relatively normal, at least within a small area of London. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess this is a huge segue, sorry, but I I guess it's important for our different understandings of the book. I find it very interesting how differently we approach this character, that you see him as a straight guy dressing up, and I see him as incredibly queer, but not because I think the fashion in itself is the queer part, because I'm very much of the belief that you should be allowed to dress however the fuck you want, regardless of gender. It's more... My next question to this is, how do you see Francis? Because Francis usually only reacts in a romantic way when... Prince Sebastian is Lady Crystallia, and that's even when they share a kiss at the end. It's when Prince Sebastian is in full drag or whatever you want to call it that he is. Yeah. And in that retrospect, I'm like, but if Francis is in love with Lady Crystallia, which is very much the vibe I get, that opens this whole other can of things. We're leaping to the end here, but my note for them as a couple is that they're not going to last. <laughs> So for me, I read her as being infatuated with his persona, the Lady Crystallia persona, and everything that that persona represented for her future as a fashion designer and her desires for her future. But at the same time, both she and Sebastian are very, very single-minded. She is a complete workaholic her entire life, and he just wants to be a socialite. Is that how shallow you read him? Very interesting. If there's more to him, I think he can be self-reflective. He's going through some hard stuff. He's living in a time where he doesn't, or, or rather he's in a situation where he doesn't think he's going to be accepted. And all those are hard, complicated things to go through. But at the heart of his desires are this catwalk scene, this being in front of the spotlight. It's not like he wants to chill out at home in a dress. He wants to be Lady Crystallia, and that's where he comes alive. And that's when Francis reacts to him as well. One, you could see that as a reaction to the identity that he's taking on, Or you could see it as a reaction to the intoxication of the scene that they're a part of, of Paris, of the catwalk scene, of the fashion industry. And that certainly continues to drive Francis. 
and is the ultimate destination of their relationship as well. Everything works out in the end because they both end up together and they haven't really explored who each other are yet outside of the context of the work that Francis has done for the prince and what the prince has gained because of the work that Francis has done. Man, you're you're tearing the story apart for me, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm being overly cynical, but I saw this as a comment on work a lot of the time. One that was both very critical in places, but also relatively naive in places as well. Like there's a particular line near the beginning where I just wrote, lol, comics. Yeah, it's the where the seamstress says, don't overwork yourself because this work doesn't love you back. That's exactly it. I was just about to read it out. Yeah, word for word. The major reason for me that this is a fairy tale story is because the work does end up loving her back. And I think that that's one of the things that I never gelled with. But is that because you're bitter and cynical because you feel like your work will never do that to you? Therefore, it can never happen to anyone else. You know what? No, because because I have been dramatically lucky in my work and actually my work does love me. And I'm painfully aware that I'm in an incredibly rare and privileged situation because of that. So maybe it's actually the opposite, that having experienced success and financial stability inside an analogous industry, I know how it has destroyed people. And I am very, very conscious of that going through. As I grow older, I'm more and more wary of the glamorization of celebrity and popularity and success in creative media that used to just sort of like gloss by me. So I suppose in that respect, there's already a barb in this book waiting for someone thinking like that, I guess. I don't know, this turned out to be a way more intense conversation than I imagined. I, full disclosure, I'm sweating. I need to shower after this. Like I went into this so high spirited <laughs> and I'm like really downcast now. <laughs> Oh no, I'm so sorry. I hope I'm not like ruining or like something that you loved unabashedly. Like there's so much to love here. I just feel conflicted about it. You know, I want to fall into it and be that guy who has that romantic image of the industry that I'm a part of or, or this industry specifically. I want them to last forever and be the fairy tale romance couple. But at the same time, there's this other side of me, which is like, hold on. <laughs> But at the same time, where you're saying that you're experiencing your own personal version of success and stability, mm. as someone who's on the very opposite scale of that right now, thanks to like what I told you pre-recording, the entire my entire landscape has collapsed. I don't get work. I don't reach anyone. Effectively, my career, as of right now, feels like it's over. For the first time since I started this journey, I've had thoughts of... Do I just need to quit? Do I need to find something else? Do I need to completely leave art altogether? And to that extent, I'm just doing my last Hail Mary and living off of noodles and I'm going to try to make my comic once and for all. If that mm. doesn't pan out, then that's kind of it for me. Like, then it's over. <laughs> and with that in mind, like being on the complete opposite scale of things from you, mm. reading this story is... Sure, it's naive, but I see the naivety. I see where the YA and the fairy tale elements kind of penetrate through the realism. But mm. regardless of that, I see the beauty of loving something with your entire being so much so that without it, you feel like nothing. And the biggest note in the entire book for me is on page 135, where the two of them, they've been out together. And for once, they've been out together as Prince Sebastian and Francis, not Francis and Lady Cristalia. And Frances has even dressed up in one of her own garments for the first time. She looks really fab. They're looking at the fireworks. And then she says, 
everything good that's happened to me has been because of my sewing. I'm afraid if I ever stop, I'll be nothing. The first time I read this story, I was like, oh, dang, that's that's harsh, bro. That's uh, this is harsh in my vibes. Reading it now in 2023, where I'm at this exact same road point myself, where either this pans out or it doesn't. And I've said for so many years now that without art, I am nothing. And I mean that to the core of my bone. And anyone who tries to be like, oh, but that's so toxic. And there's so many other things. Do you mean me? Sure, I'm sure there is. But to me, there isn't. I wouldn't have the friends that I have without art. I wouldn't have my partner without art. I wouldn't be me to the core of my very fucking fiber being without art. Art is who I am and I am art. And without that, I will have to completely reconfigure and recalibrate who I am. And I, in my mid-30s, I kind of don't want to do that because despite how shitty this profession is to me, I love it. I adore making art. It's just that I never have the financial stability to not lose my mind doing it. Mm, Yeah. It's got raw, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's the thing. I think where you see this as cynical and naive, and I respect that. I super see that angle of it. I see it as someone who also share my viewpoint on creativity and got lucky. And that's the big element that Mm. I hate about her profession is the luck and the nepotism. And if you have neither luck or nepotism, then yeah, you're me. <laughs> you you have so much you want to give and you have so much you're willing to offer and no one willing to pick it up for what you're worth. Yeah, yeah. I guess despite my relatively privileged position, I've been through a lot of the same thinking that you're talking about. And I've I've talked very intensely with friends and people close to me about similar things and similar decisions and it always hits very raw and I think each time I have the conversation it hits a bit rawer and maybe I need more of the optimist I feel like normally you're the cynic and I'm the optimist (laughs) but the other way around we're the other way around this time I think a side to that is because as you know I'm a very reflected person so even when I say stuff like this that is it's very depressing and it's very harsh it's something that I think about every single day and I can't sit down and cry about it because I, would, I wouldn't get anything done. So despite how cynical and negative I can be about so much, I have to get up in the morning and just keep on trying because no one is going to do it for me. And I, th- I think to, to survive in an industry like this, you do need that sort of ability to push forward and push past the voices sort of saying, don't continue, don't, don't carry on, you won't get anything out of it. This is a charming story. And I think for non-creatives, it's going to be even more charming because there's a sort of a glamour and allure to creative industries when you're outside of them. I'm just so fascinated by our different responses as creative people to this incredibly creative story. And I think also quite alarmed at how cynical I've become to a certain extent and how this has exposed it. It's, it's really interesting. I didn't expect this episode to go these places. <laughs> I thought I just had a few technical problems with some panel transitions. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you already partially addressed this by saying that if you're a non-creative approaching this, it's just a very idyllic little sweet fairy tale story. But you're approaching it with all your background and baggage and being a creative yourself that it exposed sides to you both about yourself and the industry 
as a whole that you just didn't really want to think about when you wanted to sit down and enjoy a sweet little comic. Yeah, maybe. And also the identity side of things as well is something that has been like something I've thought about a lot. This this sort of question of, of what is queerness and what is being queer, because queer culture is I'm deeply surrounded by it. Almost all of my friends consider themselves queer or are queer, depending upon what definition you take. But because of this weird place that I grew up in, like I've always thought of myself as straight, despite being having gone through periods of intense gender nonconformity and and generally like never having got you know, got on with any kind of dude bro in my life. And there's a part of me that wants people to be able to just say, yeah, I'm a straight guy and I'm all these other things as well. And for it not to have to be an identity, for it to just be something you wander in and out as you like, because you like things. And at the same time, question of identity and questions of where you fit in society are so huge and so pressing and so vital for so many people that it's impossible to avoid. But I also don't envy people growing up now the complications surrounding that, the worries. I think I grow up in an an incredible bubble, to put it bluntly, where... (laughs) I got to be queer without ever wondering whether I was queer. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense to me. It really does. And some of the things you say, I deeply relate to in a different way. It's why I struggle finding out my own identity for so long. Maybe I'm misinterpreting you, and please correct me if I am. But the way I read it is that you wish there was no need for labels, that people could just be people. And to a huge extent, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm very of that same opinion, that we should be just allowed to be. That's why it took me so long to realize that I'm gay. I think I've told this story many times privately, but maybe not on the podcast, is that the term lesbian never seemed that lucrative or nice to me because first of all, it was a huge, I hesitate saying slur, but it was used for bullying all of Mm. my upbringing. Like if you were a fucking lesbian, you were less than, you were undesirable. There was something inherently wrong with you if you were lesbian. And also you were kind of typecast into very specific looking lesbians. And as I got older, I went, well, I don't look like this and I don't look like that. And I don't dig this entire vibe. So I guess I'm just not gay. And that led me down a route of being miserable for ages until in my early 30s, I was like, no, you know what? I'm just a lesbian and that's just the way it is. (laughs) Yeah. If society hadn't been so gung-ho about, A, painting lesbianism as, you know, fucking Satan's anus, and also that if you're a lesbian, you either, you look like a man, quote-unquote, but you're still a woman, or you're Katy Perry, and there's no (laughs) in-between. Yeah. (laughs) To an extent, I, I super get where you're coming from, but from a very different angle where if I hadn't been deep-throated these kind of perspectives... I would probably have come to terms with who I am in a much more healthy and safe and kind way instead of internalizing a lot of hatred towards my fellow lesbians for years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so even though we're on very different standpoints because of just who we are and our genders and everything, the the point I'm trying to very long-windedly make here is that at the end of the day, no one defines you but you. And if you identify as a straight white cis guy... That's great. No one can tell you you're not. If that's who you're comfortable as, that's all that matters. And if anybody else says that you're this or that because you like this or that, then that's their perception of you and not the truth. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one because identity is, I mean, we're seeing it in this book. Identity is both something that you have exclusively in yourself, but something you can't avoid people placing on you as well. It's almost like a superposition of of what you think about yourself and what everybody else thinks about you. And and I think the book does a great job of capturing that dissonance between who you want to be and who the world wants you to be. And I think that, that was superbly captured. We started this effectively by saying, you know, is, is this a drag narrative or is it a trans narrative? And is this straight or is it queer? <laughs> right. And there is so, that's, those are such loaded questions. There are so many assumptions behind them about what those two things mean, what, what, what all of those things mean to everybody, to people. If I were to reel it back into something that at least is inherently positive to me, is that I find it quite beautiful. And it's funny that we ended down this like half hour conversation about identity and sexuality and everything. Because my inherent question of, or my original question of you going, yeah, I think he's straight and me going, really? wasn't because I thought you were wrong. It's because I mm. found it just very interesting and almost a little bit beautiful in a way that there is a way that you can read this character as 100% straight and still dressing up as a woman. And I find that wonderful. And I wish that that's the society we lived in. And I think we just segue down this incredibly long-winded and very deeply personal path because maybe it read like I was challenging you and I really wasn't. Oh, not at all. And I likewise, in return, if, if it sounded like I was challenging you, I, I didn't mean to do that at all. No, I think not at all. We live in, in a world where our best wishes for the world aren't the world. And likewise, I want a place where anyone can dress any the fuck way they like. And that actually dressing quote unquote like a woman means fuck all because anyone can do that. The fact that we have to specify a gender to a set of pieces of fabric is... <laughs> kind of hilarious in his in in the broadest absolute sense but also deadly serious because we do and we have to deal with that i'd be really interested to sort of move on to the end of the book where you said that you you sort of lost it a little bit i i wanted to ask why towards the very end of the book prince sebastian's side identity is exposed he is about to become engaged with other royalty a woman that woman's brother stumbles upon a drunk Lady Crystallia at a bar, and that's how his entire identity is exposed. And he drags his ass back to the castle in front of the king and queen. This is your son! Oh my god, you're, there's something inherently wrong with your son because he dresses up as a woman. You know, the reactions are, as you predict, they're not very positive. From here on out is where the story kind of loses me a bit. This is where the prince decides to move to the mountains, question mark, and live in a cloister with monks. And this is also very, there's, it's not expanded upon at all. I guess I'm just going to assume this other identity now and become, you know, a man of God. Francis is hired by Peter since his father is opening this clothing chain and they want her to sign the clothes for this chain. They're going to have a runaway to show off her line. And on the day of the runaway, Sebastian shows up again. The king and queen is there and they're like, we finally found you, where the fuck have you been? And he's just like, yeah, I live with some monks, I guess. And then they just decide to not only dress up Sebastian into Lady Crystallia again and have that be the runaway. No, no, no. The king, Sebastian's father is like, I'm going to show support to my son and I'm also going to dress up in drag and go on this runaway. And that's where I went like... <laughs> Please, God, no. This is so dumb and so over the top. And to me, it kind of deletes the entire point of supportive parenting. Supportive parenting to me isn't becoming your child. It's supporting what your child became. 
my reaction to that King reveal was was like I just went because <laughs> it is such a fabulous outfit, uh, but he is so wide in it. It's yes. just wonderful with the antlers and everything. Like it's such a stunning look. This is the most Met Gala it got. Yeah, yeah, but it's it, it's also like you put it so unreal. I should probably say here that as I continue to read the book, I got into it more. There were whole sequences towards the end that I just, for me, flowed really beautifully and weren't interrupted by any of the kind of pedantic nitpicking. And again, I couldn't tell at the time whether that's because the errors I was noticing had gone, because I wasn't really noticing errors, or because I was just getting into the plot. But basically everything up until that monk scene with Sebastian's reveal, which was really brutal and tragic, like it was, that was a harsh scene. And then move, moving to this this absolutely outrageous ending where the whole family are on the runway. The, the only correct response would be to say, like, yes, king, kind of thing. <laughs> and then the happily ever after, they get together and they get to live their dreams sort of ending. In a way, I loved it and I disliked it for the book all at the same time. I can see that being a takeaway. I just, it doesn't resonate. So on page 221... Frances has now started working for Peter, and then she comes across Peter in a room where he's standing with his buddies, and one of the buddies says, all those girls who've been throwing themselves at him must feel like such idiots right now. And then Peter says, and I hear he was wearing his mother's dress when they caught him too, and then they erupt into hyena laughter, and Frances slams her bag of clothing to the floor and says, you monsters, and then she runs away from there. And this is also part of the cruelty. This is equally cruel as when the brother of the fiancé exposes Sebastian. Mm. And I don't mind the cruelty as horrible as that sounds because I think it brings this horrible reality to this very subdued fairy tale. It's the lack of commitment to this horribleness that I struggle with where towards the end, uh, Peter is like, oh yeah, yeah, no problem. We'll smuggle you onto the runway, Lady Crystallia, even though I just mocked you 10 pages ago. And also, by the way, Francis, even though you're a technically nobody working for me, I'll let it slide that you called me and all my mates a monster, even though this is arguably the early 1900s, late 1800s, where women were not allowed to say those things openly to men without repercussions. (laughs) All these fairy tale elements completely landed flat for me, where up to that point, I was along for the fairy tale of Sebastian living this hidden identity and living it out with Francis and them just queering it the fuck up. And then towards the end, the story is like, no, 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 you got to remember that the world still sucks and people being different in any way, shape or form is not allowed. And then 20 pages down the line, no, no, by the way, we we redacted all of that. The the world is totally on board now because the king said so. Yeah, it's like one runway show changed the world. And I guess this, you could see that as, this might be working a little hard in the book's favor, but you could see that as sort of like emblematic of how art can change the world. And acceptance can come from seeing people in that kind of circumstance and just saying, oh, well, they're doing it. I guess everybody is. And it can also come from commercial pressure. So in those three respects, that ending is tapping into something that really does happen. But it compresses hundreds of years worth of slow social movement and little moments of progression with constant pushback and kickback into this tiny 20-minute scene where all of the characters' minds are suddenly changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't feel earned. It lands very on a skewed ankle for me <laughs> and kind of breaks over. What are your thoughts on quote-unquote sloppy borders? 
Oh, I love them. I love sloppy borders. I love sloppy panel shapes. And I love sloppy bubble shapes. Basically, what I want is for every facet of the art in a comic to reflect itself. I don't want to see someone's gorgeous loose brush strokes on the character work and then a three pixel wide computer drawn panel border with some vector bubbles that have been generated using the perfect ellipse tool. For me, those two extra additions to the gorgeous brush strokes are like betrayals of the brush stroke. <laughs> there was one really interesting moment. I've got it on page 95. And this relates to a question I wanted to ask you and something I never managed to quite grasp about the characters. It's when Francis first meets Peter. He says, your work is beautiful, Francis. Imagine what you could do with a little editing. And she says, editing. And he's like, yes, I have to say the aesthetic is not to my taste, but your design skills are undeniable. And he's trying to sort of like pull her in a direction that's reflected in the line that she creates for him before they bust up the runway with Lady Cristalia's looks. But funnily enough, a similar thing happens to her when she first meets Sebastian. She's like, oh, I've got all of these elegant designs in my head. And he's like, no, that's not you. You is that outrageous design that you made for that princess who didn't want to be liked. And that's what I want from you. And in both instances, Frances is being told what she is by somebody else or what she should be. I feel like she doesn't really have a voice. We're just meant to assume that the outrageous her is the real her. Did you get a sense that that was really like her passion or that it was just creating in general? And she didn't want to be restricted. I just don't know if the story lingers enough on Francis as a character to us to really establish an opinion of how sincere that is from her point of view or not. Because like you said, there's two different guys kind of telling her who she is or who they want her to be. And she kind of just complies to that. But in that moment on page 99, where she's all worked up and she's like, oh, I know what I want to do. And Lady Christelle is like, man... Peter was kind of insulting to you. And she's just like, yeah, fuck that. Like, I don't care about that. I know what I want to do now. That's kind of her vibe. I read her as knowing what she want to do. And what she want to do, me, reads as what she make for Lady Crystallia. And there was a sequence I wanted to point out before we went on that entire identity crisis, which was from page 105. There's an entire montage of her creating a bunch of different dresses for Lady Crystallia. And then as she goes to buy new fabric, she sees people in the store with dresses similar to the one that she created for Lady Crystallia. So she is effectively creating fashion through the prince. And that upsets her because she doesn't get direct credit for it. Yet on 105, she is just looking at Lady Crystallia, brushing her hair, getting ready to go out, I assume, or she's just maintaining her wig. And the way that Frances looks at Lady Crystallia in those panels is also that it gave me the question, is she falling in love with the character here or is she seeing her muse and she's once again inspired? I wanted to ask you the same question. <laughs> is this love I'm seeing or is this almost like she's been mesmerized creatively? Yeah, I guess to me, you can be both. You can be in love with your muse. And I think that's why when you said, yeah, I don't think they're going to last and my heart broke a little bit is... Uh, I mean, if they don't, I mean, who the fuck cares is a story. But also, I read them as lasting since they've not only gone through this hardship together, but they're allowed to be 100% themselves with one another. Maybe I should have rephrased it. They're not going to last unless they do some growing together. That's what I've, That's how I should have put it. And they're also 16, so there's a bunch of growing to do. <laughs> 
a whole load of growing to do. Yeah, absolutely. The only last note that I want to say that is a positive one is that on 264 where they kiss, it's an incredibly beautiful drawn kiss. The way that it leads up to them actually kissing one another and the entire movement in that bottom panel of the two of them smooching it moves me to my core it's so gorgeous yeah, absolutely and also significant i think that it's lady Crystalia here that she's kissing as well i can feel this moving it really is this feels like an animator's touch i'd love to see this style animated like by a top-notch french studio or something yes i was oh, just about to say french <laughs> i had a question for you actually when I got to the material at the back, there's a page where Jen says, Originally when I came up with the story, I imagined Sebastian and Francis as adults. Here are two versions of an early sample comic I did, one with the characters as adults and the other as teenagers. And when I saw them as adults, I immediately gravitated towards those designs. I was wondering if you saw them and what your reaction to them was. So at the bottom of this page, it says, I decided on teenagers since very little of the story changed, except that everything was heightened. The protagonists were discovering things about themselves for the first time, which made it more innocent and emotional. Personally, I don't agree with this sentiment. As someone who didn't come out before I was well into my adult years, I would have loved seeing more stories depicting the turbulent landscape that you can go through when you don't discover your identity until you know, you're well into your adult years. And I also, yeah, I, I just don't, Flatline, I don't agree with this statement whatsoever. I think it rings very untrue to me. I thought of you a little bit because I talked before about your experience sort of understanding your identity as an adult and saying something like changed very little except that everything was heightened. It just sounds like someone hasn't lived their adulthood properly. It sounds like someone who's very straight saying that to me. Someone who hasn't had to go through these gender non-conforming challenges or whatever. And also, I, I will argue, of course, this is taken into consideration that this is supposed to be in ye olden times. I think that's a very naive statement. And I will say it was the only thing in the book that made me go, mm, okay, that's very, that's very privileged of you to say that. <laughs> yeah, it gave me a glimpse of, of a version of this book that could have existed. It's a little more Paris. It's a little more seedy, perhaps. It's definitely more adult. And there are more real consequences in it. And it doesn't have this fairy tale ending, but it still has a fairy tale vibe. And when I saw those adult designs, that entire book sort of sprang to life in my head. And I was like, that's the book I wanted to be reading. I really don't want to sound like one of those guys who's just like, oh, it needs gratifying. And only then will it be real. <laughs> I don't know, man. I really like this book and, and it's making me think so hard about everything and I wish I could have just had that experience that you had with it. <laughs> I will have to say, I didn't realize that entering this conversation today, both of us would leave really downtrodden and at least in my point of view, we barely talked about the comic. I know, right? I've got so many notes about like like pieces <laughs> of storytelling I loved, pieces of storytelling I didn't like so much. I mean, you know, you can edit this and get an entirely different episode out of it if you wanted. The thing is, I was thinking, I had a brief thought, should we just stop and re-record this on another day where now we know like what we should avoid and not avoid? But see, the thing is, this is what media does. And this is what media yeah. should do. We've had several conversations where in hindsight, when I've listened back to it, I go, we were too sterile there. We held back in 
respect for the author and respect for one another. Maybe we were just like not in the right debating mood. Mm. And I feel <laughs> this is maybe our most sincere episode where we've never been vile to the story, in my opinion, or to the creator or anything. But at the same time, you can tell that it initially had two very different impacts on us. But in talking with one another, it had a third incredibly heavy outcome that to me kind of summarized the beauty of media. It should awaken something in you because the worst feeling is meh. When you just leave something and it's a three out of six and you're just like, eh, it was eh. It's when it's a one or it's a six that you have these kind of conversations. And to me, The Prince and the Dressmaker is a five out of six if I were to put it on the scale simply because of the ending and some of the, the minor stuff we pointed out. It's near perfect to me. I feel like the difference is that I don't mind that it's near perfect and you mind that it's not perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's totally right, that media should do that to us and prompt these kind of conversations. And I think maybe if we talked about this book again, we'd just go there again. <laughs> it's impossible not to, because it's all in here, at least in relationship to us as people, and therefore probably in relationship to lots of other people as well. Despite this conversation between us, I still love this. My perception of this book hasn't changed. If anything, I'm grateful for it because I think it has heightened our friendship. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly got us talking about some really deep stuff that we wouldn't have uh, we wouldn't have explored otherwise. And if that's not the most beautiful side effect of media, then I kind of don't know what that should be. So, with that in mind, what what have we got lined up next? In two weeks, we are officially kicking off the spooky season for real for real by reading PTSD Radio Volume 1 by Masaki Nakayama. All right, well, I'll, I'll see you for that then. See you then. Bye. Bye. Held up with a giant copy. Ah, for God's sake, of course. <laughs> I've been fluent up until this point, haven't I? Peter, Peter, Peter. I can never know how to say this. I'm Paul Duffield, a comic book artist who's Oh, Jesus Christ. I, 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 I just I'm want so to thank sorry. you for giving me blurb material straight up. Or blooper <laughs> material straight out the gate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>